Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be completing my look at Frontenac and Count Frontenac in New France under Louis XIV by Francis Parkman Jr. This is volume five, part five of France and England in North America. So we're well over halfway through this this series. So that's a that's an achievement. Um, from here on out, we'll really be focusing on the Titanic clash between England and 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 France in the Americas. Pretty much uh, the all of the first half of the 18th century it was a series of wars um, between France and England and and the Indians of North America. So, um, you know, I think in as I go back and read this, I, I think really one of the great achievements of Parkman here is is bringing the story of Native Americans into the story of this clash. Obviously, you know, people knew at the time Parkman wrote about the Seven Years' War and the fall of Quebec, and this was an important part of, you know, how people in the U.S. saw their history. You can think of the famous, um, was it Benjamin West painting of, of the, the fall of Wolf? You know, that's a classic in, in American um, art. And, you know, so that this story was known. And actually, that picture has Indians in it, if, if you've ever seen it. But, uh, you know, no one up to this point, as far as I knew, went into as much detail into the Native American experience during these, these conflicts. And that includes this volume, which deals with another conflict between England and France, the Nine Years' War. And I talked a little bit about that in the last episode, in case you have forgotten or didn't know. The, the history of King William's War, as it was called in by the British North Americans. Count Frontenac's War is called by people in French in Canada, but globally it was the Nine Years' War. This was the Christ, the conflict between Louis XIV and most of Europe, which was really about uh, Louis XIV's attempts to dominate the Holy Roman Empire um, and establish France as a hegemon in, in England, or, or, or in Europe, sorry. And he'd fight one more major war, Louis XIV, uh, that would end out his reign, the War of the Spanish Secession, which would be yet another attempt to establish uh, French dominance in, in Europe. In that case, it would be an, an effort to, to uh, take over the, 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 the throne of Spain for, his, for the Bourbon family. We'll get into that history in the next volume. So um, this book, Count Frontenac, is Parkman's effort to, to talk about what he sees as the peak, the high point of French Canada, which was under the governorship of Count Frontenac. You know, if you just kind of get the loose overview of, of New France, you kind of almost see a revolving door of, of governors. And that was kind of the feeling when you read the LaSalle book, when you read uh, the old regime in Canada, it's just that there was a really difficult in finding that, co that commanding leader who could have uh, maybe changed the course of history. The closest they get, according to Parkman's view, is Count Frontenac, who was able to, uh, he served two terms, altogether almost about 20 years as governor of, of New France, but he did it in two terms because he was fired actually after the first 10 years due to too many internal conflicts. Uh, and he was brought back in the course of the Nine Years of War. And he achieved several important things. And I talked about that in the last episode. One, number one, he secured Quebec from a, an, an invasion by the English. 
And two, he basically subdued the Iroquois and put them, forced them into a position of neutrality vis-a-vis England at a time when the British in North America, or the English, I guess, Britain was not a unified state yet, but of course you did have the, um, the same king in Scotland and, and Scotland and England, but you didn't have the United Kingdom yet. But, uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll use these interchangeably, Britain or England, <clears throat> for, for this kind of geopolitical questions anyways. Uh, in any case, uh, they were trying, especially the governor of New York, was trying to make closer relationships with the Iroquois um, to be kind of a trump card against the, the French and Frontenac through a, an invasion of the Onondaga, which uh, we'll, I'll actually mention a little bit today, was able to achieve that. So the most of what I talked about last episode dealt with the, the war with, with uh, British North America and especially the attack on Quebec and his defense of Quebec. The last 100 pages of the book um, kind of finish off Frontenac's life. He dies still as governor general of, of New France. And we get a little bit about some of the other issues going on in New France at the time, a little bit more about his rule, but Parkman doesn't say that much about it. But a lot of this section um, deals with the French and English rivalry in the frontier areas and how Frontenac was able to really achieve this pretty significant goal of of forcing the Iroquois into this essentially a friendly relationship with France and uh, more importantly, perhaps a neutral position. So they would not, France would not be facing a unified kind of English Iroquois control of the fur trade, right? Cause that's ultimately what it's about. It's, you know, who controls the Iroquois controls the fur trade. And that was one of the strengths of the French. And it was also to New France's detriment, their major source of income. That was something that was talked about in the previous volumes. Just how much New France relied on the fur trade. So by, you know, the Iroquois, keeping them at least neutral was very, very important. And that, that achievement um, laid the possible foundation for a resurgence of, of New France. Now, the ultimate fate of New France over the next 60 years would be the collapse of, of New France after a series of wars with with um, with England and well then we can say formally Great Britain but anyways the closest they got to to a, having a different track was under so, the leadership of someone like Frontenac, of, of Frontenac and Parkman thinks that had there been other leaders like that perhaps the the destiny of, of New France could have been a, a little bit different so the the first chapter uh, in this section is, is chapter 15, an interlude, 1691 to 1695. And this kind of uh, takes a break from the war primarily. Of course, uh, a lot of the fighting between England and and France in, in King William's Wars dies down after the failed siege of Quebec. Um, now, the broader plan of the French to kind of cut off, conquer New York, cut off New England, kind of that old classic strategy of... You know, even in the American Revolution, that was attempted by the British. Uh, that that never came to pass, but nevertheless, Frontenac did essentially uh, win the war uh, on terms fairly favorable to to France in the Americas. Even though the war overall was wasn't a success for Louis the Fourteenth, um, the global conflict. Um, but this puts Frontenac in a pretty good position in in New France and. 
Um, you know, as we talked about in previous episodes, there was a lot of tensions between, you know, the bishops, uh, the intendant and the governor and Frontenac, at least briefly, momentarily, try, you know, consolidated this this power and, and achieved some degree of centralization. Now, it's not going to last very long. There's still going to be conflicts that he describes in this chapter. So it, it doesn't last really. And maybe these were just institutional problems that even a governor of Frontenac's skill could not have overcome. Uh, but there was a brief moment, kind of a, a, a spring, in which there was a broad acceptance of the leadership of Frontenac. Uh, as the way Parkman writes it, quote, now every voice in the colony sounded the governor's praise. Now as always he had enemies in state and church, but it's true that the quarrels and the bursts of passions that marked his first term of governor now rarely occurred. But this was not so much due to a change in Frontenac himself as to a change in the conditions around him. The war made him indispensable. He had gained what he wanted, the consciousness of mastery. And under its soothing influence, he was less irritable and exacting. He lived with a bishop on terms of mutual courtesy, while his relationship with his colleague, the intendant, were commonly smooth enough on the surface. Warned by the court not to offend the intendant, treated him with sturdy deference. Um, or sorry, not to offend Frontenac, treated him with sturdy deference, but was usually treated in return with urban condescension. During all this time, the intendant was complaining to him of him to the minister. He's spending a great deal of money. He's no master. He does what he please. I can only keep the peace by yielding everything. He wants to reduce me to a nobody. And among other similar charges, he says that the governor receives pay for garrisons that don't exist and keeps for himself. Quote. So there's still tensions. There's still problems of, of finances, of money, of... of the, especially the, the bishop and the role of the church in New France, but he had he was able to establish power through his victory in the war. Um, but before long, uh, this happiness in in Quebec starts to have issues over etiquette and culture, things like that. And and Parkman gives a long description here of a of a tension over an effort to perform a satire, um, basically a, a cultural production. A, a play, a, a satirical play that led to the that offended the the bishop, and so the f the fact that these crises come up so quickly again, um, even after the the victory in the siege of Quebec, suggests to me that there was a just deep rooted institutional issues in the way New France was was structured that got in the way of the overall goal of establishing kind of a, a clear absolutist system. I mean. I, I think part of the problem, and this goes back to the previous book as well, that there was this effort to centralize control. And the way Louis XIV did this was with the intendant, the, the intendant position, which was supposed to be a check on the governor and be kind of a representative of the crown. But you had underneath this uh, a lot of social diversity. You had the three estates, which was still kind of based in a feudal system, the old regime kind of system. You had the Cour de Bois, the 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 people in the frontier and the other fur traders, you had the merchant class, um, you had a kind of a weakened gentry because land wasn't a key to wealth as much as trade was, unlike in France. So this gentry was kind of weakened by that. And you had the governor who was sort of always there from the days of Champlain. So that, that and then there's tensions between the governor general in Quebec and then the governor in Montreal and the governor in, in Louisiana or wherever. So these, this kind of institutional, I wouldn't say chaos, I mean, it's not the worst possible system, but there was competing power bases that prevented the centralization. Um, 
So I don't know if Parkman's trying to say that maybe centralization under the governor general would have been better than under the intendant. But in any case, these these problems emerge. Obviously, the bishop was never going to be fully under secular authority in a, in a society like New France. Uh, the next chapter is called The War in Acadia, 1690 to 1694. And this is just uh, the kind of being completionist about King William's war. Uh, Acadia was a front in the war and another place where France more or less emerged victorious. Um, but here we really see how Frontenac was able to make a, a strong alliance with the Abenakis. And so it was like with the Abenakis, he was able to uh, achieve dominance over, over Acadia. Um, but mostly this chapter is narrative military history and diplomatic history, something Parkman is, of course, very good at, but something I'm not that keen on talking too much about. So then we shift, or then Parkman shifts, to discuss uh, the frontier. And he does this in two chapters, one called New France, or three chapters, actually. One called New France and New England, the next called French and English Rivalry, and the last, Frontenac attacks the Onondagas. And these three chapters more or less complete, pretty much complete the story of Frontenac, because the very next chapter is his death, and that chapter starts out with his death. Um, so, but these three all deal with the war on the frontier and the Iroquois. And one thing that really comes off strongly in this chapter is just how violent this conflict was. Um, something that's kind of shocking with when we read Pontiac's, the conspiracy of Pontiac was just how violent the day-to-day -day frontier violence was. You know, vigilante violence, uh, families being massacred, uh, Indian tribes being, or Indian villages being burnt down and massacred. Really violent, brutal stuff, genocidal in a way. And the chapter, uh, New France and New England, is all about that. Um, and about this, the, just the violence and brutality of it. Um, I got a little quote here um, that suggests this. Um, quote, early in the spring that followed the capture of Pemaquid, a band of Indians fell after daybreak on a number of farmhouses near the village of Haverville. One of them belonged to a settler named Dustin, whose wife Hannah had born a child a week ago a week before, and lay in the house nursed by Mary Neff, one of her neighbors. Dustin had gone to work in the neighboring fields, taking with him seven children, of whom the youngest was two years old. Hearing the noise of the attack, he told them to run to the nearest fortified town, a mile or more distance, and snatching up his gun, threw himself in one of his houses and galloped towards his own house to save his wife. It was too late. The Indians were already there. He now thought only of saving his children and keeping behind them as he ran. He fired on the pursuing savages and held them at bay till he and his flock reached a place of safety. Meanwhile, the house was set on fire and his wife and nurse carried off. Her husband, no doubt, had given her up as lost when weeks after she reappeared, accompanied by Mary Neff and a boy bringing ten Indian scalps. Her story was to the following effect. The Indians had killed the newborn child by dashing it against a tree in which the mother and the child were dragged, the mother and the nurse were dragged into the forest where they found a number of friends and neighbors, their fellows in misery. Among these were present Lee Tomahawk and the rest divided among the captives. Hannah Durston and the nurse fell to the share of the family consisting of two warriors, three squaws, and seven children who separated from the rest and hunting as they went, moved northward towards an Abenaki village, 250 miles distant, probably that of the mission of Chaudier. Every morning, noon, and evening, they told their beads and repeated their prayers. An English boy captured at Worcester was also of the prey. After a while, the Indians began to amuse themselves by telling the women that when they reached the village, they'd be stripped, made to run the gauntlet, and severely beaten, according to custom. Hannah Durston now resolved on a desperate effort to escape, and Mary Nerf, 
Neff and the boy agreed to join it. They were in the depths of the forest halfway on their journey, and the Indians, whom had no distrust of them, were all asleep around the campfire. When late at night, the two women and the boy each took a hatchet and crouched silently by the bare heads of the unconscious savages. They all struck at once with blows so rapid and true that ten of the twelve were killed before they were well awake. One old squaw sprang up wounded, ran screeching into the forest, followed by the small boy, whom they had purposely left unharmed. Hannah Durston and her companion watched by the corpses till daylight when the Amazon scalped them all, and the three made their way back to the settlement with the trophies of their exploit. That's the whole story. That's how it ends the chapter, actually. But uh, just really, really brutal uh, warfare. I mean, civilian warfare in this case we see, um, we see enacted. And all of this, in the middle of all this, are, are the Jesuit missions that are still active among these Indians, kind of always being torn in the, in, in the center of these political um, disputes and, and violence and the frontier warfare. Now, in the next chapter, the French and English rivalry, we get some of the broader social and geopolitical consequences of this. And ultimately, the big difference between these two is the French would rely solely on trade and not emigration, and the English would, and this would create that numerical advantage. But Parkman plays here with opportunities, possibilities, because he doesn't say the French were or people who didn't want to emigrate or didn't have a population of people who would have welcomed relocation to the New World, but they weren't allowed to. They're, they, were, they were not given that permission. Um, quote, the government chose to construct its colonies, not of those who wished to go, but those who wished to stay home. From the hour when the Edict of Nantes was revoked, hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen would have hailed as a boon the permission to transport themselves and their family and their property to the New World. So that's obviously referring to the, the, the Huguenots. The Huguenots, uh, under the Edict of Nantes, at the end of the French Civil Wars, were given uh, their own communities, the right to worship within certain confines, but Louis XIV takes that away from them in an effort to centralize all power under the Gallic Church. Um, basically just persecute the Protestants. Uh, and then this would have been, they could have moved there. So we're back to kind of a Protestant chauvinism here in Parkman, which we saw early on in the book, you know, the, in this series, the very first chapters were about the Huguenots in Florida. And he says there, had that taken off, it would have been a very, very different model. Um, but anyways, this chapter kind of sets up those different trajectories and more about the, the tensions and conflicts in the in the frontier then chapter 19 we get uh, a chapter called Frontenac attacks the Onondagas 1696 to 1698 this is the final campaign of Frontenac and this uh, essentially leads to him prevailing over the Iroquois and forcing the Iroquois into a position of neutrality vis-a-vis -vis France and England which is a de facto boon for France because they already have that significant presence in the Great Lakes in the Mississippi and they have that fur trade and and they're able to benefit a lot more from peace and uh, and the neutrality of the Iroquois and that more or less brings us to the end of the book the final chapter is called the death of Frontenac and you know there's no drama here he just died and um, most of this is a eulogy um, an orator and a critic and it's a uh, an actual eulogy that's presented in the form of a, of a dialogue between a critic and an orator, one who, um, one who like, I didn't know if this was a common thing, maybe it was a common type of eulogy at the time, where the orator would give the good image of the dead, and then the critic 
criticizes and, and questions and it becomes a dialogue between the two. It's kind of, it's, it's fairly interesting just as a cultural phenomenon. Um, I suppose this was not the first time this kind of thing was, was done, but Parkman kind of paints it all out. And then he gives his final thoughts about Frontenac as, as a leader. And Parkman really has nothing bad to say about, about Frontenac. He kind of praises him throughout the book, mostly because of his energy, his diligence, his vigor, his, his overall capacity, and his ability to kind of get stuff done. So it's, it's very much praising this kind of a leader of will and action. Um, and that's how he was able to, kind of just force of will to achieve his, his goals. But that's something that's rare, and it's something that can't really easily be replicated in other figures. So once he's gone, then the problems of, the institutional problems in New France come to the forefront again. Um, so more or less, that's the story we get of Count, Count Frontenac's two terms um, in the course of a, of a book of about 300 pages. Um, so in the next episode, well, actually, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from Parkman for a while um, and do some Lovecraft recording. And then I'll come back and give you my thoughts on two set, a half century of conflict. This was actually the final book he wrote in the series. Um, it was, he, he actually, after writing Count Frontenac, he jumped to Montcalm and Wolfe, which is the story of the Seven Years' War in North America, the story of the French and Indian War. And he, he focused on that because he wants to finish the story and he thought he was going to die. But when he didn't die, he went back and wrote the middle chapters here, which is uh, a fairly long book. It's the second long, longest in this series. It's called uh, Half Century of Conflict, and it deals with the series of wars, the War of the Spanish Secession, and the other uh, wars that were fought between England and France and had their fronts in the Americas. I mean, essentially the 18th century up into Napoleon, starting with Louis XIV and the wars of William of Orange and Louis XIV to, to the French Revolution, you have constant war between France and England. And that's um, going to be the story of the rest of this volume, at least up into the Seven Years' War, because that kind of closes the chapter for the Americas. So um, anyways, that's it for now. Um, if you have any thoughts about Count Frontenac, if you've ever studied him, if there's anything any recent scholarship that you want to bring to my attention about Frontenac and his governorship or about New France, uh, I would love to hear about it. So um, give me your thoughts, give me your opinions, and yeah, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So that's going to be it for now. I'm going to set this aside for a little bit, um, do some recordings on the Lovecraft series, and then um, come back refreshed, hopefully, with uh, my thoughts on a half century of conflict. I'm going to do this chronologically, historically, rather than in the order that they were written. So that's it for now. I'll see you next time.